3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today is the 12th of April and it is 7 a.m. My name is Fung and joining me this morning, uh, we've got Genevieve and Carnegie. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. How is everyone? <laughs> Good. Um, I was telling Genevieve just before we started, uh, we were talking about what we've been up to now saying, you know, I've got some time off and I have all these grand plans, but I spent the first day just in bed watching TV. <laughs> mm, yeah, and I said that I'd eaten like five huge <laughs> Easter, <laughs> Easter eggs. I like bought them for my housemates as well, which is the most terrible thing. Does that mean that they won't? They get none. Oh, I just, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's, too tempting. it's too tempting. I know, if there's chocolate in the pantry... Mm, yeah, I have no self-control. You almost need to get someone else to hide them for you. Yeah. For you. Like an Easter egg hunt, yeah. except you just don't get I don't know where they are. Yeah, you ever. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it was also such a beautiful weekend. I like was yes. lucky enough to get out of town and went for a bit of a walk, um, which was super nice. Yeah. It was, I found it quite jarring. Um, Because, you know, when your body starts to acclimatize to a certain type of weather and then suddenly it's warm again, you're like, hang on. What the? (laughs) I thought we... Yeah, I thought we we were past this. I I think it's going to be um, just as warm this weekend Mm. as well. Yes, I had a look. It's saying 27 um, on Saturday and Sunday, but we'll see. Making my day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the long weekend, true. Yes, definitely. Um, is anyone doing anything? Yeah, long weekend? I'm just going away to um, Mount Beauty, which is near oh Falls Creek. Beautiful. Yeah, it's so so peaceful up there. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to five days of following in your footsteps and doing absolutely nothing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that'll be so nice. How about you, Jen? Um, I'm also going camping, but I don't know where as of yet. <laughs> Mystery <laughs> like camp. We've all agreed. <laughs> A few of my friends and I. Um, but we just need to decide. But I have some family engagements as well, which mm. will be fun. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to just eat lots of Easter eggs like yeah. you. And hot cross buns. Oh, my God. What is a hot, hot cross yeah. bun? Yeah. Like really hot, like piping <laughs> yeah, hot. Yeah, you know hot cross I mean? buns are, like, my favourite <laughs> pastry. Yeah. Yes. I'm not mad that they come out, like, New Year's Day or I whatever. <laughs> and so after fun. Easter, they're all, like, half price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Get on it. Yeah. Well, coming up on today's show, first up, uh, I spoke with Dr. Karen Block, who was a researcher at the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne, and we spoke about this recent report published by the Sarita Project um, looking at the ways in which uh, women and children 
and uh, LGBTIQ plus people experience sexual and gender-based violence um, uh, as they are fleeing violence and also um, as they arrive at their place, at their country of refuge. So that will be up first. And then... Yeah, then we're going to hear from an interview from Diaspora Blues uh, that... Uh, aired yesterday, uh, Cushy had a conversation with Anna Amina about her essay, Mind Over Modesty, which uh, is a piece exploring the lived experience of Muslim women. And just after that, we'll be speaking with Hela Ibrahim, who is the founder and editor, uh, editorial director of DJ of Jed Press, um, which is a publication that works exclusively with black creatives and other creatives of color. So she'll be talking to us about their new anthology called Unlimited Futures. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, discussion. I'm very excited about that. Um, and then to round off, uh, obviously the, we have a federal election coming up and I just wanted to break down some of the details, recent details, uh, how you can enroll, especially with COVID in the mix of it and uh, why you should enroll and what you should look out for. Awesome. Well, maybe we should jump right into the news headlines. And speaking of the election. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Six weeks. Six weeks. <laughs> On the 21st of May. He finally did it. He called yes. it. <laughs> um, I'm really excited because it's my first time oh, voting as a citizen. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. So, um, all previous years, I've just like gone along, like mm. eaten the sausage, mm. <laughs> and, like sat out there with all the like pamphlets, watching yeah. everyone going. It's like, yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of it. Yeah, it's very exciting. I feel like the the sausage will just <laughs> taste so much better. It will. It absolutely you will. I'll taste the democracy. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um. In other news, Sri Lanka at the moment is facing a severe economic crisis, um, which has been sparked by a foreign exchange crisis. So the root of the actual problem is that um, Sri Lanka owes enormous debt internationally, and um, the government needs to service $7.3 billion in foreign debt this year, or default on its debt. Um, and there's a choice that they're facing between prioritizing this over the well-being of its people. Um, the government is, yeah, not uh, meeting the needs of Sri Lankan citizens. Um, there's blackouts um, all through the country that are lasting for days, a medicine shortage, fuel and gas shortage, um, a huge spike in food prices. So people across the spectrum are unable to afford um, basic amenities. Um, so thousands of people have taken to the streets of Sri Lanka's capital, Colombo, to protest. Um, they're calling for President Rajapaksa and his brothers to quit politics, saying that they're unfit to see the country through such a crisis. So far, the government has been very unwilling to back down. Mm -hmm. um, we'll keep reporting on that as the situation unfolds as well. Um, in more local news, uh, on May 21st, Senator Lydia Thorpe will actually lead Victoria's first ever all-Aboriginal Senate ticket at the polls. 
Um, Senator Thorpe has said that climate change was no longer a future concern but a pressing current mm-hmm. issue. Um, and this federal election, it's crucial for First Nations voices to be at the forefront of that action. Yeah, awesome. And speaking of elections, after the first round of the French presidential elections on April 10th, uh, Emmanuel Macron from Republic on the Move has come out with 27.6% of the votes. In second place, Marine Le Pen from the National Rally with 23%. And just behind, which was quite a surprise, was Jean-Luc Mélenchon with 22.2% of the votes. So um, Macron and Le Pen will face off in the second round, and that's going to occur on the 24th of April. Um, So I am hoping to speak with someone about the French presidential elections and, and, um, yeah, bring that discussion next week just to understand a bit more the political landscape in France at the moment and uh, just to give us a bit of information about each of the candidates as well. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Yeah. Um, And also just to round out the news... Uh, a little update on Ukraine. There's been a lot of discussion over the last uh, week, especially involving the United Nations. And I think it's an interesting situation because you really get to see uh, the capacity of the UN. Um, Zelensky's made several speeches to the General Assembly um, urging the Security Council to omit Russia, um, which is definitely not going to happen um but the um they did remove or sorry suspend russia from the organization's leading human rights body uh this is amid allegations that its soldiers killed civilians while retreating from the region around ukraine's capital uh the united states initiated the resolution on thursday uh and achieved the two-thirds majority so pretty much has only gotten suspended from the human rights body, but I think it's interesting mainly because, you know, a lot of conversation is had about what power does the UN even have, and I think it's, um, I think the UN is largely an extension of, you know, NATO and the US, because even if you compare the UN's reaction to, you know, the invasion of Iraq versus Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and also, um, what kind of power the Security Council, which is those five countries that uh, I quote, like won the war against Germany's fascism in world after World War Two, um, their ability to just veto anything that uh, gets discussed in the Security Council. So, for example, because Russia is in the Security Council, they could just disagree, object with any decision, and so. Nothing really gets achieved, um, but Zelensky's still pushing, uh, pushing for it. But I mean, for anything, it's good publicity, uh, even though I was telling everyone before, just the grandiose, uh, just the, I don't know, the UN, like, there's this, to paint a picture, just a tiny desk with like velvet curtains, <laughs> all of the country's flags. It's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the um, scale of the what's going on versus yeah. what you're looking at. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I know um, and just to finish off the news headlines, we just wanted to make listeners aware that 
uh, on Wednesday the 20th of April from 12 to 1, there's a free online panel discussion um, about the Dame Phyllis Frost Center, which is the state's only maximum security prison for women. Um, on the 19th of March, the Victorian government announced the construction of 106 new cells, and this panel discussion will um, go through why, how the current incarceration system impacts women and why we should stop this expansion. Um, it has Vicky Roach, Jill Pryor, Sarah Stilianos, and Karen Fletcher. Um, and to find out more, you can look at the Victorian Women Lawyers or um, Build Homes Not Prisons, either on social media or just online. Great. Well, those were the news headlines for today, Tuesday the 12th of April. We'll be back with our first interview right after these messages. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Are you ready to vote? The federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enrol to vote before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID, like a driver's licence or passport, or someone who is already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, uh, 8.55am, or maybe you're streaming online, www.3cr.org. We're now going to jump into an interview that I had with Dr. Karen Block, who is a researcher at the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. She was also one of the authors of the recent report called Forced Migration and Sexual and Gender-Based Violence, Findings from the Sarita Project, which was published in March of this year by Sarita, which stands for Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Against Refugees from Displacement to Arrival. Just a content warning, listeners are advised that the interview contains um, mention of sexual violence, so if this is going to be hard for you, please feel free to join us again at uh, around 7.40 a.m. 
Joining us today is Dr. Karen Block. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Karen. Thanks, Phil. Nice to be here. Could you please start by telling us more about the Sarita project? So the Sarita project has been going for about three years, just over three years actually, uh, and it was um, it's a it's a partnership project. So the lead organisation um, for the project is the University of Birmingham, and then we've got ourselves at the University of Melbourne, and also uh, Uppsala, the University of Uppsala in Sweden, and Bill Kent University in Turkey. So we've got um, researchers from all of those places a part of the project, and it um, I guess the project uh, got funded um, in Europe following the the large numbers of uh, forced migrants who came out of Syria um, because of the civil war in Syria and it's looking at sexual and gender based violence experienced by uh, refugees and people seeking asylum um, and and it was, I guess it, the, the original interest came because we knew that there was a lot of sexual and gender based violence that was affecting um, those refugees coming from Syria but also all people who have to cross Borders, I guess, in unsafe ways. So, you know, it's also an issue right now um, with the Ukrainian uh, crisis as well. Sure, and and this report is quite detailed. Um, so, I was hoping that you could take us through um, various parts of of the report, um, starting with how uh, forced migrants of of different genders and um, different sexualities experienced uh, forced displacement differently. Yeah, so um, I guess we know that um, well, women and children in particular have specific vulnerabilities when they're crossing borders. Um, they're, um, but also, you know, and that's children, male and female, and also LGBTQI um, plus communities uh, will often experience specific forms of gender discrimination as well and, and gendered violence. Um, and all, all of those things, I guess, happen in every society at all times, but when people are under extreme stress and when they're being forced to cross borders en masse and, and unsafely and often um, without, um, in, a, in some kind of semi-legal way, um, then that puts them, you know, at more risk of all of these things. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you know, men will have other specific risks. Some men are also, also experience sexual and gender-based violence and they're also, you know, ex- experience all sorts of other violence as well. So I guess it's really important to understand the different specific vulnerabilities of different different groups. Can you talk us through what the report refers to as the continuum of violence that um, women and girls can face? Sure. So um, I guess it's recognising that violence doesn't necessarily stop once um, women and girls reach a country that's considered to be safer. So we know that um, violence occurs during conflict. So we know, you know, everyone has heard about rape as a war, as a weapon of war, and that certainly happens. Um, then, when people are fleeing conflict, conflict one of the most dangerous times uh, for sexual and gender-based violence is when people are actually crossing borders. And you may have heard about, um, and listeners might have heard about, uh, people being trafficked as they're mm-hmm. trying to escape um, Ukraine. So people are offered safety. Um, and in fact, they're being trafficked to somewhere quite unsafe. We also know that when people are crossing borders um, in a forced way like this, uh, they can be um, have to bribe their way across borders. That might um, involve 
people being raped. It might involve what we call transactional sex, where people will actually um, sell their bodies effectively in order to, to get safe passage um, or to get enough food. Um, so there's so crossing crossing borders when when they're not kind of given assistance to cross borders safely is extremely dangerous. And then many refugees end up um, in countries of first what we call countries of first asylum. So for example, people coming out of Syria that was often Turkey, um, or um, people coming from Afghanistan will often end up in Pakistan or Iran. And in those countries, they're not necessarily sometimes they're offered. Uh, a lot of services and protection, but sometimes not as well. And those are also um, risky environments uh, where people can be subject to all sorts of gender-based discrimination and violence. And then even once countries reach, uh, once, sorry, once refugees reach relative safety, so for example, if you're thinking about Australia here, um, you know, when refugees reach Australia, they um, can still suffer all sorts of structural uh, discrimination and what we would call structural violence. Mm. Um, and I guess the other thing to remember when we're talking about sexual and gender-based violence, there's you know there's things that we all think of with horror, such as rapes as a weapon of war or women having women being raped as they're crossing borders. But in fact, the most common violence that women experience is from their own partners. Mm. Um, so intimate partner violence or, or family violence. Um, is the most is actually the most common form of violence. And once people reach um, countries of refuge as, as as refugees, that kind of violence doesn't stop. Um, and so and that, and all of those things can be heightened because of the stresses and the trauma that people have gone through as well. So I guess that's what we call the continuum of violence. Is that is that um, violence that continues across borders um, and in different stages of people's journeys. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to note that refugees and asylum seekers don't necessarily, um, or the violence doesn't stop once they reach uh, a place like Australia, like you were saying, especially from what we know about Australia's um, detention uh, policies, that there is a lot of um, structural violence um, that could further, uh, I guess, add further trauma to, to these people who have already suffered so much violence along the way. That's exactly right, it, yeah. And I think it, you know, it's completely right to call it structural violence. I think that's exactly what it is. And, um, and then when, if you have, um, I guess, women too who are in positions where they, they are detained or even released into the community but not given permanent protection, they remain more vulnerable to other types of violence too. So... For example, if they're experiencing family violence or intimate partner violence and they don't have secure visa status, um, that, that might make them ineligible to receive certain supports from services. It might mean that they're too afraid um, to actually seek support from mm -hmm. services or to seek help. Um, often men who are perpetrating violence against women in those those situations will actually use their insecure visa status as a, as a way to hold power over them. So they may threaten them that if they report, they'll get deported or, their, or they'll lose their children. Um, all, sorts of, all sorts of ways this, this kind of plays out, um, in, I guess, in unanticipated ways. It's not, it's, there's the very direct violence of keeping people detained um, and people keeping people in prolonged states of uncertainty, but then there's other indirect um, consequences of, of that as well. 
Um, you mentioned before that uh, there are a few factors that prohibit or, or can stop women from reporting um, violence. What can you tell us about that process and are there any or are there ever any mechanisms in place to, to help women in these situations? There certainly are. And, you know, Australia has some fantastic services and including we have um, services that are specifically set up for um, women from non-English speaking backgrounds or, you know, who may need need assistance with the interpreters and things like that. Um, and... But they, you know, a lot of these services are very stretched. They do, they do a great job, but they don't always have the kind of level of funding that they need. And the other issue is just women, I guess, not knowing about these services. So, you know, it's, it's all very well to have the services, but actually for women to find those services is not easy. Um, and women may also, even if they do have some rights, um, they may not be aware of them. And as I said, men will, will tell them that they have no rights, you know, to, to hold power, you know, men who have perpetrated violence, obviously not all men. Mm. Um, so, yes, look, I'm, I certainly, you know, I really would like to acknowledge the fantastic work that some of our services are doing um, and including with with female, you know, all refugees who are experiencing violence. Um, but there's, there's barriers to, to people finding those services and accessing them. That was the first part of a discussion I had with Dr. Karen Block from the University of Melbourne. We are going to come back with the second part of the interview after this next track. This song is called Bodies and it's by Wafia, who wrote the song in response to her Syrian family being denied refugee status and, and as well in response to Donald Trump's Islamophobic rhetoric uh, leading up to the 2006 U.S. election. So here is Wafia with her song, Bodies. There was something in the fallout In the funny how the wind blows We give them something to talk about And they're locking up their windows And even when the night hits All of the lights have got us running We ain't got to be reckless But you'll never stop it coming
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. That was Wafia's song, Bodies. We, Before the song, we were listening to a conversation I had with Dr. Karen Block about a report published by Sarita on the sexual and gender-based violence <clears throat> that women and children, refugees and asylum seekers face. We are now going to jump back into the final part of the interview. Um, Dr. Karen Block begins by explaining how the complexities of the legal system can make it even harder for refugees and asylum seekers who have already experienced violence along the way. And if you think about it, even even someone like myself who, who grew up here, you know, understanding how all of these different legal systems work is not easy. You know, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's quite complex. So. Um, and you just imagine if you haven't been here for very long and if you don't speak English very fluently. Um, and then you can also add to that that many refugees, you know, have obviously experienced persecution and trauma um, before they came here. And they'll often, uh, so which leaves them often with, with a great deal of distrust towards mm-hmm. authorities. So that makes it, that's another layer, you know, to add into that. Yeah, and the report mentioned, you know, the... I guess psychological um, effects of of refugees asylum seekers having to retell their stories of trauma and um, violence over and over again that can also um, have a, a negative or a poor effect on on their mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's another example of that kind of structural violence, really, because. Um, for people who, who are trying to prove their refugee status, they do have to tell their stories over and over again. They have to prove that they've been persecuted. And we actually know that um, if people are suffering from trauma um, and it's affected their mental health, that is very difficult. That has, a, that has a real impact on people's memories and it's very difficult for them to remember details or to remember things in a coherent way. Mm. Um, and yet our system assumes that if people don't tell the same, exactly the same story every time or if they change the details or if they mix up, you know, when something happened, if this happened before that, it, they're then assumed to be lying and that can actually, um, it can actually damage their case for asylum. So even though we have evidence that, that you know, trauma and, and associated, you know, mental distress can make um, the remembering of, of a coherent, you know, past very difficult, um, we still expect that of people. Yeah. Um, what can you tell us about other barriers um, that stop people, stop women and children from accessing health and psychological support for sexual and gender-based violence, especially when they reach that final um, destination? Sure. I guess, well, there's quite a, quite a lot. I mean, two of the big ones really are, of course, language, which is, is fairly obvious, you know, if you don't speak 
um, if you, you don't speak English fluently, it can be very difficult to to access services. And while services will use interpreters, there can be complications there too. Um, sometimes the person providing the service um, may not, uh, you know, may not approve of women um, from their own community telling stories about violence mm -hmm. against men in their community. And that's all tied up with complex complexities around discrimination that exists in countries like Australia towards certain refugee communities. And then, of course, you don't want... Those communities feel like they don't want anything that might bring shame on them. Um, so that, that gets complicated. And this idea of shame and stigma, I guess, is the other really big barrier. So people, um, you know, I guess historically and, and even still, you know, we don't have a great record of, of being open talking about um, intimate partner violence or sexual violence um, and things like that. So there's a great deal of stigma and shame attached to those, having experienced those things. Um, and that that's the case for, for anybody. Um, but I guess if you're coming from a an already marginalised group um, or a, a group, um, an ethnic group that's discriminated against already, um, then that 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 barrier of stigma and shame is, is multiplied again. Definitely. Now, just pivoting slightly, I did want to talk about the countries that were involved in this um, the study. You know, the people that you interviewed with migrated to um, five different countries. Is that right? Yeah. So we, I mean, obviously people went to many more countries, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, we interviewed people in Turkey, Sweden, in the UK, uh, Australia, and Tunisia as well. Did you find any similarities or differences between um, their policies, um, services that they provided um, and support that they offered to refugees and asylum seekers? There's, yeah, there's certainly quite a lot of differences. So, I mean, Turkey um, has been hosting, I think, around 3 million refugees. You know, huge numbers mm -hmm. of refugees are living in Turkey. And so I think in Australia where we make a big you know, <laughs> we get very upset about a few thousand people who come here without without a visa or or have come in the past. Um, it's it's quite hard to imagine what what's that like what that's like. Um, so they're I, they're actually not offered permanent protection mostly in Turkey, um, but they do have they do provide are provided with a lot of services, but they're quite different from the kinds of um, services we have in Australia, um, and it's. It, yeah, I mean, it's rather, I guess it's probably too complicated to go into great detail about, you know, all of the different um, policies and things that are available because it, it changes even within one country depending on the exact um, immigration status of the person. So uh, in the UK and also in Australia, for example, we have people who have been provided with permanent protection and, and they're on a permanent protection visa. So that's that, you know, we have our humanitarian settlement program. Um, and those people offer quite a lot of support um, and quite quite good services uh, funded by the government. But then we have people who um, claim asylum, are trying to prove their refugee status and, and apply for protection. So in Australia, that could be people who've arrived by plane. Mm -hmm. They might have come on a tourist visa or on a um, temporary work visa, something like that, and they 
um, apply on the basis of having um, experienced persecution, apply for refugee status, and they can spend many, many years really in, in a kind of limbo where they're waiting um, waiting to have their claim processed, um, and they might have you know, really restricted access, eligibility for all kinds of services and welfare and things like that at that stage. And then, of course, you know, we all know here in Australia that people who arrive here by boat, so with no kind of visa, um, are treated particularly harshly mm. and, and have, the, you know, the worst treatment of all. And then in different countries, it's, you know, you've got different variations on that same kind of theme where there's different treatments for different people depending on how they arrived and, and what their exact migration status is. Sure. Um, and I'll just say Tunisia, I guess, is... Um, is really a transit country where you've got people coming from sub-Saharan Africa trying to reach Europe um, and there's particularly um, terrible conditions, you know, and those those women in particular are frequently subjected to, to um, sexual violence during that very unsafe journey. Mm. Um, in your findings, were you able to um, come across common things that helped survivors, uh, whether that's, you know, in transit or once they've reached their place of refuge or their final destination? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's one thing we know about all sexual and gender-based violence, whether that's refugees or, or other people, is believing people is, is kind of the first step, you know, taking what they say at, at face value. Um, and that goes for all, for all people who've, who've been victims of sexual uh, gender-based violence, um, and then it's really about providing appropriate supports for people. So, you know, using interpreters, um, providing a safe and secure accommodation, providing certainty of residency status is, is huge. You know, you can just imagine, I'm sure, that if you are, are fighting to stay in a country and you don't know if you'll be allowed to stay, that trying to recover from any kind of trauma is that much more difficult. Um, so, you know, it's it's really really those kinds of things. It's it's all the basics. It's it's housing, it's adequate um adequate finances, you know, and uh good edu- access to education, access to em- employment services, all the things that we know help people generally. Um and then add in those extra layers, I guess, around support for psychological trauma, um and providing safety. Yeah, definitely. And I guess um, the last question that I have for you is, um, you know, what recommendations does the report have for governments or, or sure. um, yeah. asylum seeker services? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I think the biggest one for the international community is understanding that um, we need to provide safe ways for people to flee violence. So... It's really important that um, people aren't just left on their own to get across the border in any way they can because that's when the, when the violence really intensifies. Um, so it is about, you know, really providing safe passage for people um, to, to a safe place. Um, then I think once people are in countries of refuge, it's all those things I just said around, um, you know, not keeping people in this prolonged state of uncertainty, which is so damaging to their mental health. Obviously, you know, I'm sure you can imagine that I, I don't think detaining people for prolonged periods of time in immigration detention is appropriate at all, um, and that just adds extra trauma um, as well to people. Um, it's about 
providing opportunities, I guess, um, and services and opportunities for people to disclose uh, experiences that they've had. So often um, that that might mean, you know, because, as I said, one of the most common forms of violence that continues even once people have reached a country like Australia can be intimate partner violence. So it's about making sure that women and children have opportunities to disclose violence um, on their own away from some possible perpetrators in their families. Um, it's around, I guess, us all working to decrease stigma and discrimination so that people feel safer to disclose and seek help, making sure we use interpreters um, and that interpreters are properly trained and supported um, to work around family violence or all sorts of violence and hearing about violence. I mean, one of the, one of the problems can be in Australia, for example, is people who have arrived um, from communities where there's not a large number of people who speak that language who've been here for a long time, often the people who are working as interpreters have their own trauma that they're still processing as well. So it can be quite triggering to have to listen and hear about family violence. So we really need to support support our interpreters as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's many things we can do, and um, you know, and a lot of it is really, and I, and I think just this. Yeah, thinking about the implications of insecure visa status and doing what we need to do to actually give people permanent protection and, and safety and security. Mm-hmm. If people want to know more about this report or if they would like to read it, is there um, a, a copy that's made public? Yes. So we have um, an international launch is actually happening on Wednesday and it will be available... Um, on the Melbourne Social Equity Institute website or also the University of Birmingham website. So if people just Google to read a report, um, University of Melbourne, for example, then they should be able to find it. Okay, great. And, and we can also um, provide people with the links to those websites in our show notes. Thank yes. you so much, Dr. Karen Block, for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for, being, thanks for your interest. That was Dr. Karen Block speaking to us about the Sarita report. Um, if you were upset by anything that we discussed in our interview and would like to reach out for support, you can contact WIRE on 1300 134 130 or Lifeline on 131114. We'll be back with the song right after this. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X 
a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, for more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Our next song is by Kenyan-born Australian singer-songwriter Elsie Wameo, and this is her song River Nile. To defend my peace, struggle to find a relief. All the pain still sits can be. Be vexed for a couple of weeks. Man, stress don't sag the peace. But we press down by all means. All the begging and pleading are all peace. That is the beginning of an ILOG. Living all running and moving in three. To the far east on the borderline. Been far less tears, but I still cry. I've been on the edge, but I'll get mine. Build up the empire. I'm setting out to define. Build up the new kind. Should have invested the first time. Should have invested the first time. River now with a flow that can never run out, of course. Move with an unknown source. I'm a cow, I'm in a good enough force. Not like I got two round of applause. How many only ever watch a good doors? Any statements stay on your toes. Not good juggle pays. Mentally aid myself and the ones when I quang on that door. Then time they won't let me be free. Stabbed up for that pain to go deep. On a borderline rage, you know I don't. Already they were giving me the antidote. How you feel to be messing with the federal? Last time I broke for a medical. Worst place I was in by far. But you bet I'm gonna get it all. I get it all. I get it when I'm getting older, begging and pleading at OP. That is the beginning of an ILOG. River now running over, moving in threes. To the far east on a borderline. Been far less tears, but I still cry. I've been on the edge, but I'll get mine. Build up the empire. I'm setting out to the fine. Build up the new kind. Should've invested the first time. Should've invested the first time. Should've invested the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been months and I've been running away from freedom. Where the hell could it have been? Where has it been? I've been a victim. And I could have been locked up 40 years now. I'm running away. Flow nights like the river now, never running out. Making a widow without. Living it clear like a diamond ring. But they won't live to be free. Stabbed up with that pain to go deep. On a borderline rage, you know I don't. Already they were giving me the antidote. How you feel to be messing with the federal? Last time I broke for a medical. Worst place I was in by far. But you bet I'm gonna get it all. I get it all. I get it when I'm getting older, begging and pleading at OP. That is the beginning of an ILOG. Ripping all, running and moving in threes. To the far east on a borderline. Been far less tears, but I still cry. I've been on the edge, but I'll get mine. Build up the empire. I'm setting out to the fine. Build up the new kind. Should have invested the first time. Should have invested the first time. 
was Elsie Wameo with her song River Nile. We're going to jump into a conversation that was had yesterday on Diaspora Blues, where Cushy spoke to artist, educator and writer Anna Amina about her essay Mind Over Modesty, an essay exploring the lived experience of Muslim women. Diaspora Blues is a show that provides a platform for people interested in ideas about home, community and belonging. You can listen to the show on 3CR every Monday from 2.30pm to 3pm. This is Cushy's Conversation with Anna. Um, so, as you know, my name's Anna, but I also go by Mina sometimes. So if you hear it out, Anna or Mina is fine. Um, I'm an educator slash teacher, um, curator, art lover, and now recently a writer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so amazing. I mean, she does everything. She's a hustler for sure. Um, definitely. Thank you so much for that, Anna. I really appreciate it. Um, we're going to get right into the interview and I'm really excited because I had a few, we were just talking about it before, Anna and I, we have a few more slightly more intense questions and then we have some more casual questions because why yeah. not? Um, okay. The first question I have for you and I'll start with a more of a, a fun one. Okay. It is related to the essay, but I did my own little twist on it. So. You talk about your mind being like a bag of Skittles in your essay. Are there mm-hmm. any two colours that you don't think to put together? Oh, that is a really good question. Okay, mm. let me think about this. The only colour combination I'm a little bit iffy about, and this is going to be, <laughs> is putting yellow and brown together because I really don't like Hawthorne. But <gasps> I the see. Quality, <laughs> But other than, I feel like sometimes, but yellow and brown, I feel like is having a resurgence in fashion. Like I was talking with my friend the other day, like wearing, about wearing like a brown, uh, top, like a brown jacket with a, like another, um, yellow underneath or something. So I don't know. I just don't think there's too many tones of colors for them to ever not go together also from my childhood and my teenage mm-hmm. years I had like mm-hmm. a purple and green obsession and anytime yeah. I see the two together yeah yeah I can't do it I can't do it anymore not that I think they come up, they go together quite well but yeah. I can't actually see it anymore without having like teenage nostalgia or something yeah awesome yeah. no thank you so much for that Anna um, okay, the next question, um, again, talking about colours, uh, and mm-hmm. almost, almost talking a bit about self-expression, but your Instagram feed, oh, bane of my okay. existence, I love <laughs> it. Tell me Thank girl, you. Um, would you say Instagram is your probably primary vessel of self-expression? I know, I just threw that This off. is like, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, these are excellent questions. You need to give yourself a pat on the back. These are really oh, good questions. Also, I love talking about colour. Anytime we're talking yes. about colour is. Um, I want to say yes and no, because in a large part, I do my Instagram for me. Like, so if I don't, like, if I don't like the way it looks, I don't care what anyone else says. It needs to be how I envision it. So in a way, I would say yes, but also like I, not that I hide, like I don't put everything on Instagram. So I don't think it's like my truest form of expression. I think it's one form of expression. And I think that everyone should have different forms of expression. Like, and in that way, then it's not tied to one thing. So if I lose my Instagram tomorrow, I'm not going to be upset I'll just find something else to do if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so in 
in a way, it's Instagram's like a platform for me to like get all the, my color obsession onto a social media platform. But in another way, like, um, I feel like everything in my life sort of runs that way. So mm-hmm. it isn't like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's like yes and no. I think that's yes and probably no. the, I, I yeah. love how you talked about um not having like such a strong attachment to it, but it's almost just like, you know what, I'm gonna do this because it's fun. It's um mm. it's a fun way to kind of I don't know just show your outfit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but in, anyway, even every any time I feel like for me, I'm very um intrinsically motivated and like mm. things like if I don't like what's going on. Then no amount of outside motivation could get me to do it, if that makes sense. So just like, yeah. So for like for me, the Instagram is like me in in a in a on a platform. I kind of wanted to get a little bit more deeper um, because I Mm. absolutely loved your essay. I read through it twice because I was just like, oh my god, like you put into the way you write is just so. it's not imaginative, but it's what someone wished they could say and just said it um, in oh, the best thank you. way. So talking about the essay, I really want to delve into this question saying, there's one phrase I really loved. I love when you mm-hmm. said, who does humility actually serve? Um, and yeah. I loved how it was short and sharp and it was like in the middle of the paragraph, not paragraph, in the middle of the essay as well. It wasn't at the end. So you didn't leave like the reader mm-hmm. like, like, oh, I wonder what it's about. But Talking about mm. that phrase, who does humility actually serve? When you see someone actively acting in this manner, uh, what sort of emotions mm-hmm. does that evoke for you? Sometimes, so, um, oh, these are really good questions. Um, <laughs> so sometimes it's just like, I feel like what I had to learn was when you hide yourself from people, you lose out and other people lose out. And sometimes I'll see these girls who are so cool. They're so cool and they're so intelligent and they're so like, and you'd want to like engage with them more, but they'll say something like, I am not that good at it or I'm not that cool or I'm not that like, they like downplay how incredible they actually are. And for me, I just like get frustrated because I'm like, you are so cool. Like, tell me more. Like, I want to know more. Like, why are you, why, like, why have we been taught to like, hide who we are mm-hmm. like it, it sort of like it really came up with my intelligence because I was just like whenever we were in conversation I was in a conversation with someone I'd always be like okay don't be too much like don't like try and like minimize it but then it's just like people don't get to see the full version of who you your best self basically and I feel like that's the because what I try to do in in the essay was talk about I, there's no problem. There's no issue with being humble. I think being humble is an incredible quality and sometimes we all need to be humble. <laughs> but, <laughs> I feel like, yeah. Uh, yeah. but I feel like girls or women or people of color have been told for so long that it, it, in order to get through the world, you have to be humble. You have to hide yourself. Mm. You have to minimize yourself because it's literally a survival mechanism. If you enjoyed her interview and you want to see more, please support Anna Amin on her Instagram or even her gallery, The Window. Very wise words from her. That was Cushy speaking to artist, educator and writer Anna Amina. Next up, we're going to play a song that is from one of my favorite TV shows on this planet. It's called 
um, We Are Lady Part about an all-Muslim female band, um, and this song is called Voldemort Under My Headscarf. That was the song of Voldemort under my headscarf. Kind of, you'll have to remind me what show that's from so I can note it down for later. Yeah. Um, we'll be back with our next interview right after this message. <laughs> Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Hella Ibrahim is the founder and editorial director of Jed Press, an online publication that works exclusively with black creatives and other creatives of color. Hella is on the show this morning to talk to us about the importance of developing and presenting new works by black and POC creatives and the recently released anthology of speculative fiction from 21 emerging First Nations and black writers called Unlimited Futures. Welcome to the show, Hella. Um, maybe you can start by just telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up um, with creating JetPress. Oh, <laughs> that's a long story, so I'll keep it, you know, relatively short. Um, so uh, I come from so, so, so I come from a publishing background, I would, a traditional publishing background, I would say. Um, and then after a while of working in publishing, you start to notice that there is a um, well, it's pretty white in there. Um, certainly, like 
certainly there's a few things lacking in publishing. So um, I kind of started Jed Press as a way to address some of the issues I was coming across. And so it kind of functions as both a publishing space and an advocacy space, I guess, um, to talk about. And it's not just diversity as the thing. Oh, oh I hate that word. But um, <laughs> it, it's not just about, like, you know, racial diversity. It's also about the fact that people in publishing are massively underpaid, um, if they're paid at all, you know, there's there's a lot of there's, there's quite a few issues I think going on in there that all basically that all basically work together to form I guess a barrier like a huge barrier to access mm. for for a lot of people. So Jed Press is a way to I guess try to address some of those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned you know it's a very white space, which it of course is, um, and I feel like literature and literary fiction in general is often viewed as a white space sort of by default, um, even though you know heaps of non-white cultures around the world have a rich history of fiction. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the history of black and POC literary fiction? <laughs> Oh, gosh. I'm not actually... I would say I'm not... I'm not enough of a historian to get into that, I would say. Also, I think it's just interesting the way you phrase that because it's um, kind of, you know, it's it's not viewed as... It's like, actually, we're not taught about it at Mm. all. Like, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you a lot about the history of black and black and black writing in Australia because, like, we're not really... You know, look at what we study in high school. Look at what we, you know, what gets what books are made into movies and that kind of thing. And it's like, well, there's actually, you know, the history of black and brown writing goes back eons. Um, I was in a, I was doing a thing for Writers Victoria once um, and we had somebody, uh, somebody was from a Persian background in there. And um, yeah, just, you could kind of see from the conversation that that it wasn't clear that, you know, <laughs> to, to others in the class that Persia, like, Writing from from the Middle East and North Africa, and from all over the place, really. But I'm going to talk about North Africa and the Middle East because that's what I know. Um, but you know, we have we have long, long histories of of great writing, and you know, there's an Egyptian writer who won the Nobel Prize for, for literature, um, Nagib Mahfouz, and you know, and and there are there are lots of other. Yeah, I don't know. I guess we're not taught a lot about it, and as far as Australia is concerned. There's, like, quite a few, like, you know, you could start listing names, like, of of really well-known black and black writers. Like, you know, you've got Tony Birch and um, Anita, sorry, I'm trying to hold back a cough right now, Um, Dr. Anita Heiss and, like, you know, a lot of people who have been writing for a really long time. Mm. Um, Although those two, those two, thankfully, people know about them. But this is the thing, like, I couldn't start, I couldn't even... It's such a wide topic, you know. Do we start talking about uh, Audre Lorde? Do we start, uh, you know, do we go to America and black writing in America or do we go, you know, to the original, to the uh, origins of storytelling on this continent, you know, like long before the written word? Mm-hmm. Um, there was, tradi- there was, um, you know, a tradition of oral storytelling that also exists in Africa, by the way, um, although, you know, in Egypt we've had writing, but there's still strong oral traditions. Anyway, long long rambles short, I just think it's it's sad that we don't get taught a lot of these things in Australia, in an Australian context. We were still studying the same, like, I'm not going to name any any writers, but um, let's just say, like, oh, I I don't know, I'm I'm quite over the whole Aussie surfer 
coastal town, whatever kind of book. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's interesting you, you know, talked about where do we go next? Like, where do we look? Do we look to America? Like, where do we go? Like, I grew up in India, not a white person in sight. Um, mm. And somehow I was still studying white books all through high school, um, you know, and and now as an adult i find that it's one of my greatest pet peeves i i look back and i'm like why on earth were we studying that <laughs> that is so interesting like even even in india you're still studying you know the the white authors that's and that's just wild because it's like i know india has a has a great like literary literary like yeah, background absolutely. i guess is how i would put it like and i barely know anything about it like and even i know this so i'm like yeah it is I mean, colonialism and the British have a lot to... I mean, we won't look at just the British, like, you know, France has a lot to answer for and the Dutch, but, but yeah, it's just it's just interesting how that kind of history bleeds into into today and into every facet of every, like, part of your life where it's just... A hundred percent. Yeah. And just the way it was never even questioned and just put on a pedestal and that's just accepted. Um, mm. So, to me, it's... Yeah, like just incredible that Judd Press exists and is um, telling the stories that it is. Speaking of which, um, Unlimited Futures is an anthology of speculative fiction from 21 emerging First Nations and black writers. Tell us about speculative fiction and um, how this book came about. Um, sure. I am going to just uh, start that with um, Rafis Ismail, who is, uh, the managing director um, at Jed, and who also is one of two editors on Unlimited Futures, um, along with Alan Van Meersen. Um But Rafif did uh, make a point on, on um, I think, Instagram and Twitter recently, where we do want to um, kind of refocus the the terminology around it. To it is an anthology of Black and Black writers. It is First Nations and Black, but we um, we are trying to. I guess use the terminology, you know, um, of like Afro-Black and and you know First Nations Black, um, just to avoid further erasure of blackness around that. Um, but in terms of how that came about, um, Rafif, uh, who is, as I mentioned, my managing co-director, um, basically for about a year and a half, uh, talked to me about, you know, came up to me once and was like. Um, came up to me one day and was like, uh, you know, I've got this idea for a book. I'm thinking speculative fiction. And I'm like, I love speculative fiction. Yeah, like, you know, I'm on board. What do you need? Um, and just for for a while would like, uh, you know, come to me every now and then be like, okay, so here's an update. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, sounds great. Sure, sure, sure. And then when it's like, um, oh, you know, we've got Fremantle board on press with this idea, uh, Fremantle press on board. Um, and I was like, okay, so we're actually, yeah, okay, I guess we're doing this book now. Um, so since the, yeah, opened up submissions and all of that, but it's basically this book came about, um, through Ray's idea, but also just because, like, the, 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 I guess the background to that idea was the fact that there is, um, a, you know, a, I was gonna, you could say an opening in the market or something, but, or a niche, but basically there is a gap, um, in terms of where, where are black and black writers? In, in Australian publishing, like, where we're not asked to talk about racism or we're not asked to talk about, like, you know, justify your existence and why are you black or, you know, how does being black affect your life? And we just wanted to move away from that kind of anthology because it's just, it's 
I don't know about you or anyone else, but I'm like getting real, real sick of reading about racism. Like oh, I visit every day. It's oh, exhausting. Yeah, right? It's exhausting. I'm just like, I just don't want another book about it. Like I just don't want to read it. I don't want to put it out in the world. And we're like, speculative fiction just worked really well as a genre to allow people to just write something without that burden, I guess. And writing lately has felt, um, I think, for a lot of creatives in this, you know, post-COVID era where everyone's a little bit burnt out. And it's like, how do we come back to the, you know, to, 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 to the joys of writing or to, to writing something that actually makes us feel good, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of how that book came about. And then, yeah, like I said, Rafif actually did a lot of, like, I was there mainly just to support and to provide, like, you know, extra an extra hand when it was needed. But Rafif and Alan Van Yeven basically, yeah, um, once Alan came on board, they... You know, we opened up the submissions, they went through them, all of that, you know, all the technical production stuff. Um, but really, yeah, really it's just an anthology that, that's brought to, I guess, continual conversation, as, as Alan and Rafif put it. Um, but continual conversation and a shared vision of what, what our future could look like, like what, you know, uh, where we could be if, 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 if we weren't in this dystopian nightmare that we're in now or if we wanted to get out of this dystopian nightmare we're in now, what direction do we take? And I guess we wanted to put out, yeah, like I said, something hopeful and something joyful. So it's like, it doesn't, you know, the world is a bit crap right now, but it doesn't have to be. So, yeah, I guess I guess that's, that's the book. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to be at the panel discussion that you had with some of the contributors last week, um, and I saw that theme come up time and time again from the different contributors who, you know, um, I think Laniuk touched on it and um, Claire G. Coleman touched on it as well about the freedom to imagine that comes with fiction in particular. Um, and it gives you this respite from having to justify or um, explain yourself at, or, you know, talk specifically overtly about the racism that your experiences, which is exhausting just experiencing it. Mm. Yeah, 100%. I think I think one of the best things about this book um, as well is that, as, as you heard, um, and, you know, thank you for being there. That was, um, uh, well, I was saying that was a little uh, taster event. Um, we will be having a launch later in the month. We're just um, in the middle of organizing it at the moment, but keep an eye out for details for, for the for the probable launch. Um, but but one of the uh, great things about this um, this book, and I think I did say it at that at that launch you were at, um, is that it was such a it just feels like such a community book. Like you couldn't um, like I mean I guess you could say like one person was in charge or you know Rafif and Alan like you know were were in charge and they were, but it's more. That, that just that everybody who contributed to this book, like, is kind of on the same page and is kind of working towards the same goal. And, you know, we're all, like, we're all kind of echoing each other's sentiment. It's such a collective, it's, it's just such a group sentiment, I guess, book. I, I don't know really how to describe it, but it's just, I think I think it's evident when you when you actually sit down and read read the whole thing is that you can just tell that everybody in there is like, yeah, you know, I've got something to say and or... You know, here, here's where I'm at, or and it does allow for everybody to be where they're at, I guess. But it, it is also just we are like all kind of on the same page about what we're doing with this book, I guess. Without without there ever being a brief, nobody actually went around and said, okay, here's what we're doing. It's just that every writer who like 
you know, well, even the, even the writers who didn't end up in the in the anthology, but um, yeah, everybody came in with a with a with a, I guess, a collective mindset, which I really love. Yeah, um, I definitely got that sense, um, and I'm super excited to read the book. Um, where can people find out more about the book and buy a copy? Um, so I've been encouraging everybody to head to Amplify Bookstore. Um, uh, Amplify Books is a um, well, I guess it's a BIPOC uh, bookstore where they only sell books by black indigenous and people of colour. Um, and this, it's run by just like two lovely, such lovely people that I'm like, I must, like, I must promote this bookstore. But, um, so, so my preferred bookseller would be Amplify Bookstore. You can find it there or you can go to Fremantle Press's website, um, which I think is probably FremantlePress.com. <laughs> I should have probably checked that. Um, but it's at Fremantle Press. Um, you can, uh, you know, you'll, find information there and also be able to purchase it directly there. Um, although, like I said, my preference is Amplify Bookstore, but that's just me. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, any, anywhere on Jed's social media. Incredible. Um, we're unfortunately running out of time, Hella, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about just all the things and especially why people should read fiction by black and black writers and creatives of color. So thank you so much. No, thank you. That was Hella Ibrahim from Jed Press talking to us about the new anthology uh, Unlimited Futures. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Hello, I'm Ayan Shirwa, the host of 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. If you're a long-time 3CR listener, what is up? And if you're a new listener, welcome. 3CR is home to 400 volunteers and over 126 programs. Every year, we bring you stories that concern all of us. The workers, the unemployed, folks from all walks of life. And unlike the corporate shills, our funding comes directly from the community. In return, we shine the spotlight on stories about the climate crisis, Indigenous communities' fight for sovereignty, Palestinian perspectives, and any of the music or art programs 3CR champions. To help your favourite grassroots media stay on air, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 
You're back on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It has just clocked over to 8.16am. We're going to go to a track now uh, by a musician I discovered. A couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to go to a live music event. <laughs> um, just <clears throat> It would be a few weeks ago now, but I saw our Brazilian band Azimuth, who are incredible musicians, but it inspired me to, I guess, look at... Brazilian music in the era of the 1970s and I stumbled across Anna Mazzotti who put out a couple of albums but this is from her most acclaimed album which came out in 1974. Uh, it's called Rhoda Mondo. <laughs> Zotti with uh, her song Rhoda Mondo. All right, we're going to launch into a discussion. Well, I've made some notes um, about the recent announcement of the federal election, which was announced for the 21st of May. Um, and I guess this discussion is more so about uh, why, I guess, ugh, how to enroll like how to vote, especially I'm going to start off by talking about some of the recent events. I know looking at the news and seeing the federal election is not everyone's most exciting. Um, I don't know. It doesn't fill me with like joy and excitement. 
So, uh, breaking down some of that, it's going to be just an onslaught of media, uh, these next six weeks. Um, but, so Prime Minister Scott Morrison has called the fair election for May 21st, uh, when announcing the day in a very brief press conference on Sunday, the PM very much focused on the election being about the voters, which you would wholly, surely hope so. Lots of journalists kind of pinpointed that point where he was like, this election is about you. It's about the voters. And everyone was like, that's awesome. No, yeah. <laughs> but what, what, also, what did he mean by that specifically? Did he say... I think, well, it was nice for him to deflect um, some of his own, I guess, that whole politician, mm. uh, everything's about my party in the election and, you know, put the onus back in the democratic system, which is about the voters. Right. <laughs> um, but his persuasive point was that we are voting in an election for a government uh, we do know, which is, you know, his Liberal Party, and a government in uh, Scott Morrison's words, we don't know uh, the Labor Party, but I'm sure, you know, everybody knows who the Labor Party is. He's just trying to be persuasive about, um, we're familiar with how the Liberal Party, you know, deals with situations, and we're not sure about how the Labor Party deals with situations. But I thought in, in an article that The Guardian um, wrote, uh, speculated this brief but strident announcement speech, uh, represented how the coalition might perform in the next six weeks. Uh, they suggested that keeping things sharp and to the point uh, would avoid scrutiny and confusion. It was a very short press conference. They also suggested it might, might signify Morrison and the coalition not starting this contest from a position of political strength, as the polls might suggest and as the last three years might suggest. Um, but opposition leader Anthony Albanese responds with telling voters Australia was a great country but could be better with a better government. I love all this, like, oh, it's so obvious. <laughs> it's like this, it's debating 101. Yeah, you know? it reminds me of, you know, if if you studied English at high school, it's like mm. picking out persuasive language techniques and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, it's like, what did they say that I can rebut? Oh, I'll just say that actually we need a better government and not. Yeah, anyway. Uh, he said the incumbents had a plan for re election, a plan to grab a second decade in office, but no plan for the future. Also summed up, summed up by The Guardian, Albanese's core pitch was I am decent. I will respect an office that my opponents have disdained and traduced. Labor is ready to govern. I've been campaigning since I was a kid. I've been deputy prime minister, acting prime minister and chief parliamentary uh, tactician uh, for Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. If you put us back in government, I will lead the most experienced incoming Labor government in history. So he made that speech in um, response to Scott Morrison's announcement of the election. Um, And I think it also should be noted, and I'm sure if you uh, should perceive I mean, you might perceive this as congratulatory or just grim. ScoMo is actually the first Prime Minister in 15 years to survive a full parliamentary term without being uh, removed by his colleagues, which is, like, insane to think about. Um, Also, as noted in an article in the ABC outlining day one, so yesterday of the six-week election circus, the PM has had some hard yards 
to make up for and to get voters on his side. Firstly, why did the recent federal federal budget spank $3 billion on fuel excess? This seemed like the perfect way for the government to amplify the perception that the prime minister doesn't actually care that you're struggling to pay for fuel. Uh, secondly, why has the government been obliged to devote up to $5 billion to women's security, health and workplace participation programs in the last year? I mean, it's, of course, welcome. But does anyone think it would be happening if the PM had a cheaper way of getting women to like him? <laughs> Truly. Mm. Also, why is there $20 billion in infrastructure spending that Barnaby Joyce wants because Morrison needs a political settlement of the coalition climate wars and the easiest way was to throw a little of your money at the situation. And on the other hand, Albanese, who claims as a former socialist left firebrand, is going into this election backing $19 billion a year worth of tax cuts to the wealthy, which are due to commence within two years and about which Labor proposes to do nothing at all about. Uh, not in Albanese's favour, but yesterday you can watch him struggle to convince Australians that he knows his way around the economy where he couldn't name either the unemployment rate or the cash rate. When asked by a reporter, the footage is really funny, so if you look it up. Um, but I'm sure there'll be plenty more manic and frenzied interviews and press conferences on every side, which will make for viewing pleasure, in my personal opinion, and I can't help but have you know, that circus theme song stuck in my head watching the news lately. Um, it's literally like watching clowns perform the hoops of politics. Um, but all that aside, it is important to vote, very important. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm going to encounter many arguments of, but this is this a real democracy anyway? And or they or they, they both suck and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but please vote. And if you don't, haven't done so already, enroll. Um, and just going through, you know, exactly how to enroll now, you can enroll via the Australian Electoral Commission website or fill it out on paper and send it via the post. The electoral roll closes one week before the election, so May 18th, um, and the polling places are open from 8 to 6 p.m. and you can find your closest one on the AEC website. Uh, Pre-poll voting starts 12 days before voting day on May 9th, and you can vote early either in person or by post for a whole range of reasons, including if you will be out of the electorate you are enrolled to vote in on voting day. Uh, Further than eight kilometres from a voting booth, um, you are seriously ill or about to give birth or caring for someone who is, uh, you're in hospital or prison, travelling or unable to leave work, or if you are a silent elector. You can also vote early if you have a reasonable fear for your safety, um, and this also includes getting COVID-19, which I'll go into a little bit later, um, and the government enters the election uh, holding 76 of the 150 seats, meaning it will need to keep the same number of seats to form the majority government. Um, I also wanted to mention for people eligible um People eligible to vote are people over the age of 18 and Australian citizens, but also there are a lot of people that are not eligible to vote, which I think is uh, important to note, uh, and that includes people serving uh, prison sentences over three three years or over. Um, I mean, and also to note that First Nations people represent a huge uh, proportion of people in prison. 
Um, non-citizens obviously cannot vote. Some people with disability or people deemed unsound of mind cannot vote. So, you know, not everyone has the privilege to vote um, as well. Um, and a good question, I'll quickly go into this because we need to wrap up, is how do I vote if I'm isolating or have contracted COVID-19 close to the election date? Um, the AEC announced it would roll out a telephone voting system for these those subject to isolation orders. Um, so with six weeks to go, it's still fine-tuning the registration process, but the digital engagement director said people with COVID would have three days to ring and get their vote in. Um, they said the key thing to note with this service is that it isn't only for the final three voting days. Up until the Wednesday prior to election, people are able to apply for a postal vote, but there'll be more details about that later. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jen, for that. And, and of course, we'll be covering more about the election uh, in the lead up yeah. to May 21. Um, but just quickly to wrap up today, uh, we heard from Dr. Karen Block from the University of Melbourne speaking about uh, women and children refugees facing sexual violence. We heard from Cushy from Diaspora Blues and then also Hella Ibrahim from Jed Press. Um, you're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Looking forward to um, joining you again next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.